Der Triathlon Show 456. up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm Rose michael and on today's episode i interview tom bell tom is a coach performance consultant and elite cyclist based in yorkshire in the united kingdom he is the founder of the coaching business high north and that also produces great educational blog posts that go beyond what can be found in the vast majority of media outlets in the endurance sports industry so uh, some of you are probably familiar with tom's work already and in this interview, we dive deep into Tom's approach to training and coaches and uh, various uh, topics of interest for cyclists and endurance athletes. But first, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. They create sports nutrition products, including both fueling and hydration products, and they help you use them effectively through a range of free tools, services and content. They have recently launched a fantastic fuel and hydration planner on their website that is a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you. It's free and super easy to use. It only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed, simple and effective race plan. They also offer free video consultations. And as a listener of the podcast, you can get 15% off your first order of the range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Roca. Roka produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water, then look to Roka's range of wetsuits. From the entry level to the top of the line, all of them come with arms up technology and exceptional quality and comfort in the water. Roka's trisuits work perfectly together with the wetsuits as they too come with arms up technology to really maximize your shoulder mobility for the swim. And on the bike and run, the trisuits are optimized for aerodynamics and comfort. Roka's range of sunglasses and, pres- and prescription glasses is also packed with innovation with patented, patented technologies such as Geeko anti-slip technology. They are ultralight and have excellent optical properties. Visit roka.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order. Now without any further ado, here's the interview with Tom Bell. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Tom. How are you doing? I'm good, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. I think um, we chatted over email and I said that we were big fans of the podcast here. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be speaking to you. Yeah, and uh, likewise, uh, I have uh, stumbled across your uh, writings actually for quite some time. Like the, when I have a question every, every once in a while, you have a great article that that goes into a certain uh, topic on the High North website. So, And actually, that's something that also every once in a while, one of my athletes sends me an article of yours. And, and I do think that they're really good quality. So, so kudos to you for that. Can you start by uh, introducing yourself? Uh, tell us a bit more about uh, who you are, what you do, and your background. Sure. Yeah. So I think that probably the two most interesting aspects are, um, firstly, the, my athletic um, c- career or uh, me as an athlete. Um, so I've really been um, on the mountain bike side um, more in the last, um, I suppose, decade. Um, so raced uh, World Cup mountain bike um, cross country, um, managed to win the mountain bike marathon uh, national title in 2017 then just missed just missed out on the cross country title for for second place in uh, in 2018 uh, and then sort of over the i guess when the pandemic started i raced a bit more domestically and um found myself doing more sort of hill climb time trials which are quite a uk centric discipline um basically just time trials from the bottom of the hill to the top and whoever can can ride up the fastest um is the winner um and i managed to win the national title at the end of last year so um current national champion in that in that discipline and then hoping to get back to some more mountain bike riding um you know in the, in the coming year um and then on the on the coaching side uh, i run a I suppose performance consultancy with my with my wife dr emma wilkins um where we offer everything from coaching to you know consultations with self-coached athletes um and then we also produce some various information resources as well yeah that is a great overview and and i'm curious about the the hill hill climb time trials uh would you say 
is that a pure uh, power to weight discipline uh, obviously also the weight would include stripping your bike uh, of everything possible um or is there more to it than that uh, what what yeah what, what would you say that goes into that discipline i would say uh, i would say that that discipline is very much um more of a numbers game than than other than other forms of racing just because there are so you know the variables are so minimized you you essentially have a very simple course that's usually completely uphill some sometimes you will get longer climbs with some sort of flatter or downhill sections in that you need to accommodate for but generally speaking they're they're sort of all uphill they're fairly short in the uk i would say they are usually two to eight minutes in length um and it, it kind of is really a a power to weight ratio game and you can almost i suppose you could almost just decide the 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 race the results just by looking at uh looking at that metric um so it, it is mm. quite it's quite formulaic in that way um and it's yeah it's a, it's a little bit more simplistic i suppose than other forms of racing mm, yeah um so we have a couple of topics or quite a quite a number of them actually and uh, that we discussed over email that would be would be interesting to get into and the first one uh, is around long-term planning and goal setting so how do you approach that with uh, with your athletes yes i think the way i always try to describe it is through sort of analogies um it helps me to understand you know the process quite easily and hopefully helps the athlete to, to get their head around it as well so um, firstly, I kind of take cues from like the business world. You know, the the the, the business world are very um, very invested in long term planning and uh, figuring out the best way to get from A to B. So, um, you know, ha- just you know, having KPIs and uh, setting good good goals that uh, that are specific and measurable uh, and follow those kind of best practices is, is generally a good way to go. And then. Coming back to that analogy, um, uh, an analogous sort of uh, method of um, planning, just trying to describe it a bit like a sort of car journey. So, you know, getting getting from A to B in the most efficient way possible. So figuring out where you are, you know, your current location um, in, tr- in a training sense, that might be where the athlete's you know, current physiological profile is, where they're psychological strength is and um and and other aspects that influence the training uh process um then figuring out where you actually want to go so the destination of this journey and then drawing a line between the two and figuring out um how how are you going to get there in the best way where are you going to check the map i.e where you might test throughout the year to to make sure you're actually on the right track um and then you've kind of got that day-to-day steering to keep you on the right road which is probably you know the communication between coach and athlete the uh the little modifications that you make to training uh, to make sure that the the session for the day is appropriate so when i when i'm kind of approaching long term planning that's that's the way i try to describe it to athletes so hopefully they can get their head around it because it, it is always difficult you know trying to set trying to set goals and trying to talk about things fairly in a fairly abstract way um when when things could be you know weeks and months down the line it is it is challenging, and I'm wondering about um, how you do that in practice with the goal setting. Uh, like, do you actually, for do you, for example, write down that in three years uh, I want to achieve this, and then you follow up on that, or yeah, how do you have any practical uh, things that you do with with that long term planning with uh, with your athletes? I think usually the planning is is sort of constrained to maybe the you know the coming season i think having certainly having um aims and targets that that are further out so if if you were coaching say an you know an olympic athlete where there's that four year cycle then i think you need to have you need you need to know where you're you're aiming at much more long term but usually most of the kind of granular planning is done in a uh, you know in in the in the current macro cycle or the year or season um and then it's it's always a question of whether you start with the goals and work backwards from there, or you try to figure out that kind of current location, that you know physical physiological profile that they, that the athlete has right there, um, you know, in the in the current time, and whether that then informs what the right goal should be, because you might be setting goals that just you know aren't aren't relevant or aren't appropriate for that athlete, um, and you know maybe they could 
figure out something else that uh, that would suit them better. Um, so it's it, you're right. It is always difficult to 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 know quite where to start and how far to plan out and how um, how specific and granular you want to get with that. Mm. So if you if you take an example from a, from that yearly planning and yearly goal setting uh, perspective, then uh, what would the would the goals be generally some sort of outcome based goals, whether it's a race result or a physiological marker or a test result or something or a mix of those? Can can you give some examples? Basically, if you sit down at the start of the year or the end of the year and and map out, okay, where do we want to go uh, this coming year? What what could some examples be of goals you would set for that coming period? Yeah, I think I think you alluded to it there. It's um it's a mixture of sort of outcome goals, performance goals, and then process goals. So figuring out, you know, what 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 the ultimate outcome that that athlete wants to achieve, that's usually something akin to a a race result or or a finish time or something like that. But it's important to understand that these are these are goals that are out of um out of the control of the athlete really. They they're a the, the the result of other goals being executed um so so that's something that's always um you, you know you don't want to hang too much on that and see um j- just the achievement of that goal as a success or a failure you know completely um then yeah it's usually a process of working backwards from a, you know usually a specific date or a set of dates to then um figure out where there should be you know what what the performance based goal should be so whether that's like a particular power output or a um something along those lines um and how that relates to the how that then relates to the overall sort of outcome goal and the journey towards that um so you you're working backwards to plan plan in when you might want to have those performance goals be be achieved and then it comes back to the more of the day-to-day kind of activities that you know the process goals those little little tasks and actions that inch inch you forward to towards those uh, ultimately towards those outcome goals and what are some examples of these day-to-day process goals that uh, would come up regularly i mean i think certainly you know daily workouts are are an example of uh process goals and and then within those workouts you know just just little um tasks to focus on so executing a good a good warm-up trying to um trying to complete a set of intervals at a, at a it, within a you know a certain power or heart rate range um trying to uh maybe optimize their uh, the athletes sort of fueling um so t- you know taking on a certain amount of carbohydrates per hour and training that kind of thing so certainly process goals can be all kinds of different things but it's really at the core of it they're the the small tasks tasks that you can focus on in the present that you know you stack one after the other after the other and eventually it gets you there uh hopefully it should help you to work towards those uh those goals that are further along the track yeah and how do you monitor uh how the athlete then is progressing uh, over the course of a season and and how do you you mentioned already maybe mapping out where you w- want to do some testing so so can you discuss how testing plays a part in that but also the general monitoring even uh, outside of testing yeah so i think um it's a mixture of um using sort of key tr- training metrics um and then communication with the athlete so um, usually the type of testing that we'll do comes, comes down to a sort of matter of resources uh, and also that athletes, you know, personality and what they, what they like and dislike. Um, so you, so coming back to the metrics, maybe, you know, um, if we were looking early in the season at their, you know, aerobic development, you might look at something like efficiency factor or, you know, the power to heart rate decoupling that, that can be a nice, um, you know, little marker. Um, if you've got, the opportunity to use maybe lactate testing or, or something along those lines that could, that could be helpful. Um, but then I, I do find that just regular communication with the athlete and trying to get them to be um, aware of their you know sensations in training from from day to day is can be a really good way to for them and myself to gauge you know how they're improving um, because. You know that just gives you a, a lot more, um, a lot more data points. Um, you know, de- de- you know, daily data points essentially, rather than um, just just waiting for, say, some maximal effort testing um, or or some more, I suppose, lab or physiological based testing, where 
essentially you're measuring how good they are performing that day and it's hard to say whether they would perform better than that you know the next day or the 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 day before that so um, i think there's an issue sometimes with maximal effort testing sometimes um you you know maybe not not being broadly reflective of where they uh where they currently are so i think a mix uh, in summary i think a mixture of um you know daily daily metrics and then some more formalized testing yeah, no, testing is very specific to a certain task, and and sometimes the workouts are more related to racing performance, uh, even though we don't see them as testing. But I completely agree with you that they they can be just as informative if you uh, if you can gauge how the athlete is performing objectively and subjectively in in those kinds of workouts. Um, so. Yeah, regarding then testing and uh, if let's say that the athlete has the resources to implement uh, any kind of testing that you want and and they are also open to whatever you suggest, what would what would your preferred testing methods be if you could have it completely your way? Yeah, so we have sort of here we have like um, a VO a VO two master, um, some Moxie monitors and um, and lactate, so it usually you know it will come down what what we actually decide to do will come down to you know the individual um and what they're actually training for to some extent um you can certainly get a lot of information these days you know just from more field-based testing measures because we we do work with um uh, you know a lot of athletes sort of from around the world really there aren't there aren't um it's not like all of our athletes are local and we can sort of test them firsthand um but I would say ideally, you know, the physiological testing is good to set set that baseline to understand that current current location um, of their you know physiological profile. So I think a, a good, well rounded um, set of tests might be something to do with um, looking at you know gas exchange, so VO two max, and some you know, getting some information on ventilatory thresholds. Um, having some lactate data is, is, is always nice. It's, it takes quite a few tests usually to have data that you can actually rely on, but, um, it, it, it can be useful nevertheless. And then when you pair that with, you know, some, some power profile testing to, to fill out the power duration curve and maybe apply some, some other models like critical power to that, you, you get a good, a good overall sense of, um, you know, where you're starting from and what the, what the right direction to take the training from there should be. Mm. But with those physiological tests, if you want, if you see them as a great starting point, is that something that you're uh, you're okay with doing just maybe once per year or maybe twice per year? It's not something that you would do very regularly, or or yeah, what, what's your take on the frequency of those kinds of tests? Yeah, again, again, if there's potentially the resources to do that, and and the athlete is is one who uh, enjoys that kind of thing, um, then then I think you can do it more regularly. Um, and uh, oh. but 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 I think certainly the the more sort of field based testing is uh, is is helpful throughout the year. So in ter- in terms of the, in terms of the physiological testing, that maybe on average that might be something that happens sort of twice a year i think sometimes you can get um you're trying to look for for changes that are a bit too sensitive sometimes to be picked up by these instruments because they um they do have you know margins of error associated with them where you might just not be able to pick up changes to to enough of a sensitive level so um so so yeah i would say on average maybe twice a year is a good is a good sort of uh, frequency to shoot for for the physiological testing you can kind of fill in fill in the gaps of uh, in terms of in terms of what you understand um a lot with mm. field more field-based testing and and what field-based testing uh, do you prefer when you use that again i think it's um it comes down to the individual a little bit i think broadly speaking having a having a complete sort of power duration curve is 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 good that that facilitates you know more more um accurate modeled metrics it's sort of in programs maybe like intervals icu or uh, wk05 um and then sometimes they're f- f- depending on what the athletes you know demands uh, the event demands are you know we might do some testing where um you know uh, a certain uh power output a certain 
power for a certain duration might be conducted, you know, after prior work is done. So maybe after, you know, 2000 kilojoules. Um, so sometimes these are fresh efforts. If again, if they're training for say a hill climb, then your fresh, fresh efforts are more important than something that's kind of pre-fatigued, but for maybe a sportive rider or someone who's, um, you know, racing in, uh, competing in races where that, uh, that performance and, and that, uh, I suppose, yeah, race performance is dictated a little bit more by, uh, power output towards the end of a race. And, you know, the, the fatigue resistance is more, more important than that would influence what sort of testing we would do. Mm. And and when you do that, so whether it's uh, when you, for example, fill the power duration curve, uh, would you what what's would would you try to do that over a specific like a predetermined set of durations? Do you have any standards in in mind that you that you normally use? That okay, every three months or so, I want my athletes to do a fresh three minutes and twelve minutes and. 20 minutes or something or or is it more ad hoc and then you play around with it and include different fun durations in workouts uh, so it almost doesn't feel like testing what what's your method there yeah it's uh it's it's a mixture of those depend depending on the athlete really i think ad hoc testing uh, you know adding ad hoc uh efforts into into workouts is a good way to do it as you as you said it um it stops it feeling like uh, a, a formal test which can be daunting to some athletes and it um just just integrates it a little bit nicer and it can be part of the training rather than sort of a, a break from the training um just certainly in terms of just a typical approach like you mentioned um some, something that's more of like a sprint or, or peak power um duration is is good plus um, something that's fairly short. So one to two minutes, something in that middle range. So three, maybe four to six minutes and then, and then a longer effort as well. So what that can do is it, it fills out that power duration curve quite, quite nicely. Obviously we don't have, don't always have the ability to have a sort of maximal effort over something more than 60 minutes, but, uh, it's, it's still, it still functions quite well. And then, as I was saying, you can then apply, you have the durations there to apply, other models that can be useful, say, say critical power and W prime, um, W prime calculations to that. So you can do a lot with mm. that, that spread of data. That was going to be my next question. Do you, uh, do you prefer uh, critical power W prime or something like MFTP FRC from the, the WKO model or, or do you prefer the WKO model or, or intervals that ICU models? What's, what's your, preference there so so when we've done that kind of testing we'll always look at uh sort of each of those to just see how things compare and um and which one sort of aligns with what we're seeing in the day-to-day training the most we do find generally the critical power model is is a robust uh framework to use um and it, and it gives uh it, it gives more information i think that's that's useful than say just like a the popular kind of 20 minute FTP test, it, you know, it gives you that above threshold capacity and, and the critical power as well. So you can just do more with that. And then obviously it, it opens up the possibility to, you know, predict maximal performances over certain, you know, within a certain duration range, which can be useful for, for some athletes, uh, you know, for, for, for pacing strategies and competition, uh, kind of uh, plans. Um, so yeah, generally the critical power model is is the one we'll use the most. But certainly we'll 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 look to see what other programs are actually telling us as well, because uh, you know they sometimes calculate things in a slightly different way, and um, depending on the athlete, sometimes one can be a little bit more useful than the other. Yeah, and and, and I, I I do the same thing looking at both of them, and and I find it quite useful actually because. Um, I do find that something like MFTP in WKO sometimes is more reflective of what what an athlete actually can hold sustainably over a slightly longer period of time than the calculated critical power when all of the efforts are in the severe domain. But then the way I see it, critical power kind of uh, explains the ceiling for your maximum sustainable intensity. And, and but if you can't hold your critical power for very long, then that's that just tells. And your MFTP, for example, is way lower than your 
critical power, then that's just, uh, it, it kind of tells you where you need to work, at least if your racing is not completely in the severe domain and it's something like a short hill climb. But if it's something that where you have to have that sustainability and, and ability to go hard for a longer period of time. Yeah, ex- exactly. It, it just helps you sort of diagnose um, what you know what might be the biggest areas of opportunity to work on for that athlete in relation to the you know their event demands. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back a little bit to the the fitness progression monitoring, um, I wanted to ask around how you how how workout progression for you um, feeds into that. So. So would you, for example, repeat the same workout or multiple weeks and then you monitor the athlete, how the athlete responds to that workout? Or how often would you basically progress a workout to be similar but harder, whether it's a threshold workout or a VO2 workout or, or anything else really? Uh, what's your progression method like? Yeah, I think uh, I think early on, sometimes you, you get into the trap of trying to make the training a little bit too varied and, uh, you know, change sort of every week, which has its advantages. Uh, you know, it keeps things fresh for the athlete, it gives them sort of new challenges. Um, but I think repeating, if, if you kind of take the idea that there are only going to be a certain amount of workouts that, um, you know, that, that are optimal for that athlete and what they're working on at that point in time, I do think it's um, it's very useful to actually repeat the same kind of workout design, you know, for for a period of time, so you have that more uh, direct comparison that you can apply. Um, in terms of how we then go about um, progressing those workouts, I think sometimes you can fall into the trap of arbitrarily um, adding a certain amount of, uh, let's say, uh, repeats to a to a single interval. Um, to, 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 a, to a set of intervals or if you uh, may be performing some sort of over under style interval blocks you know you might add a couple more um you, you know micro components to those um but but that is fairly arbitrary you know who's to say whether adding two two repeats is 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 the right thing to do so often the way we approach it is you know we'll have them uh perform the sort of first one first session that uh, first new session uh, and then the, the going forward from there we'll sort of say okay and repeat the same re- repeat the same interval protocol and then at the in the final interval um just just go a little bit longer and just go to that point where it feels like you know you're 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 pushing to a level where you're you're working hard but there's there's a little bit left and then you can essentially let the athlete find you know their the, the right level of progression and not sort of impose that fairly arbitrarily from from the coach side yeah no, I, I really like that uh, that's a that's a good approach and um yeah, you mentioned there that there might only be a, a certain number of workouts that are uh, optimal for the athlete at the, based on what they're working towards their objectives and so on. Uh, so, yeah, how how do you how do you figure out what those workouts are? How how do you basically make sure that you get the most bang for for buck for the for the workouts that you're doing? So, I think a lot of it just you know comes down to trying to draw on your experience of you know what it, it depending on what that athlete is trying to work on or what we've decided is the best thing to try and work on at that point um you know what what sort of interval design what kind of intensities are going to potentially facilitate the best adaptive stimulus um so so again we're, we're drawing on our experience to try and understand what what that is there is certainly some trial and error involved with that um and i think Again, it comes back to having a good communication between coach and athlete to to get some feedback from them about how they feel the session went, whether they enjoyed it, whether they um, felt it was kind of helping them progress in the right way. Um, so it's a it's a multitude of different sort of inputs that we're that we're trying to, I suppose, iterate as as the as the weeks go on to try and try and hit upon what the right session might be for that particular. Ad, you know adaptive goal yeah yeah and uh, and in endurance sports today we see a wide range of approaches from a pretty strict focus on physiolo- physiology and physiological markers uh, to not really caring about them at all but using the, the power duration uh, curve to monitor and plan training and we already kind of talked about this or alluded to this but um, yeah can you just discuss on where 
you would say that you sit on that spectrum uh, of physiology and physiological markers versus just relying on uh, power power models and and so on. Yeah, so I think the the first important thing to 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 note is that you know real world performance is the thing you're really trying to optimize. That's that's what you should care about the most. It's not um, it's not that useful if you have great metric, uh, you know, great great results and great values in the lab, but that doesn't reflect into into real world performance. Um, so certainly that's what you're trying to optimize. But I think you know I, I don't think you need to be binary and and be one be on one side or the other because i think it's clear that both have their their benefits and their advantages um it's really good to have uh now to have the tools to be able to do feel you know field-based testing or us to coach people around the world and have them go out with with a power meter for instance and and get some really get some really sort of useful information um but it but it's sometimes then difficult to to completely diagnose you know where that where that performance is coming from so it's it's useful i think when you can to look under the hood to to understand what is what what is producing that 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 performance and where you can potentially then uh optimize the physiology to to see greater performances um because it's sometimes sometimes difficult to know what's what's limiting that performance and what's actually um what's actually producing it um so 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 uh, in an ideal situation i think a combination of the two of the two is good but and then you know with software nowadays and uh, some some good some good algorithms you can sometimes get quite a lot of insight into the underlying physiology from like we were just talking about like modeled metrics uh, and things like that so i think things are getting better and better and um, and helping coaches understand more just from field testing but but i i do think um when the opportunity arises getting some get getting a look under the hood is also useful yeah yeah but i think what you mentioned there at the at the very first point about what what you care about at the end of the day is performance and and that's basically a third dimension so so it's not necessarily related to either one of them because in a in many cycling disciplines, especially, it's it's not about who has the best physiology or who is the most powerful. It's uh, it's it's about so many more things than that, like uh, skills and race tactics and and so on, knowing when to make a move, when not to make a move, and uh, so so that's that's at the end of the day what you're what you're looking for. It's not not about having the the highest average power when you get to the finish line. It's about crossing the finish line first. So so I think that that was a great point, and I just wanted to reiterate that one. Uh, just um, yeah, ju- just to make that that very clear. And um, uh, another question that is always interesting to get into is uh, when when you have a new athlete that starts working with you, uh, are there things that they are typically surprised by when it comes to the program that you give them or the way you prescribe training? Uh, and also, are there any patterns in what typically changes the most from what the athlete has been doing compared to what they uh what they will be doing when when you start working with them yeah i think um quite often the most common thing is that quite a lot of motivated athletes don't have a don't have an issue with training enough it's you know getting them to to rest and recover and actually sort of adapt to the training so i think a lot of people kind of direct their attention to their training capacity so maybe how many hours they have for training um but but don't really sort of turn the turn the lens around and look at their recovery capacity so you know maybe they have maybe they could squeeze out 12 hours of total training time but you know are they able to recover from that and and do that do that repeatedly you know week week after week month after month on a consistent basis maybe in in that example you know training 10 hours a week and then having a little bit more recovery recovery time might be the way that that athlete you know, imp- improves more. So, so, you know, trying to sometimes get across that slightly um, contradictory idea that resting a little bit more might actually be the way to get uh, to, to get to get faster or to get to get more powerful um, is perhaps one of the things that we tend to find we're implementing uh, more often than not. Mm. And is that just about uh, in in a case like that? reducing the training volume slightly or would you also tell them to look take this extra time that you're given and and sleep in this morning like would you be specific about um 
the yeah what what they should do to recover and also get be more involved in discussing how they are for example fueling after workouts and so on to to optimize the entire recovery process yeah so when we when we first start working with an athlete that's essential we're trying to you know gather all of this information so that we can um again coming back to like the uh taking sort of cues from the business world using something like a SWOT SWOT matrix or a SWOT analysis can be helpful just to just to find where those areas of you know potential opportunities and, and threats can can actually can actually be so whether that's something to do with their psychology or their you know sleep habits or their diet and fueling um you, you're trying to work out where there might be sort of um, low hanging fruit in terms of what, what you can, what you can help them improve. And sometimes that isn't just the actual workouts they're doing. It's, it's everything around that. Um, so, so it, it comes down obviously to the individual and we'll have, you know, the right conversations and with, um, with each to try and figure out how we can help them or, you know, move them on to, um, somewhat some other expert who can potentially help them in that way so it's really about figuring out for that individual athlete where the again where those where those threats and opportunities might lie um but but certainly like the recover just just the general idea of thinking more about recovery and having you know that be a, an, a vitally important part of the training process is something that i, d- I just don't think s- some athletes are as much aware of as the the training and you know the actual work outside of things mm, yeah no, that makes sense and uh, the next question this is actually um you don't know this yet but it's something i've been thinking about a lot for for the last couple of months and and i'm excited to to ask your opinion of it because i haven't had a chance to to discuss this with anybody since i started really thinking about it uh in now in this recent uh, yeah this recent phase of mine but it's about, around how to use terrain in your cycling training and also uh, terrain as well as indoor cycling so if we start by uh, just comparing and contrasting outdoor versus indoor cycling um, what would you say are the pros and cons of each and when would you uh, suggest doing one over the other yeah, I, I realize I'm sort of prefacing all of these questions with it, it depends and it's uh, based on the individual. But certainly I think indoor, you know, indoor to outdoor cycling is, is quite an individualistic thing, whether that's individual in the sense of, you know, that athlete's particular schedule um, and how how easily they can fit in certain rides, um, you know, what, what athletes tend to prefer, how how distracted they get, those kinds of things. I certainly think, you know, unless we're talking about like indoor indoor racing then then outdoor riding is more specific and it it has sort of more elements to it that can that can help with um you know with with improving that performance and i think maybe generally speaking it helps um you know athletes not get quite as burnt out or um or yeah just i suppose yeah just burnt out um compared compared to lots and lots of time indoors um I think indoors is very efficient. Um, it, it really helps um, to sort of you get down to the sort of uh, finer details of the training and actually execute those really well. There are some athletes who who struggle to, let's say, can, you know, control their intensity outdoors, especially with, uh, you know, rolling or a, a very variable terrain. So uh, um, indoor training certainly removes a lot of those variables and can be a lot more controlled. Um so, so yeah, I think, um, I, and again, a combination of the two, depending on the time of year and what, what the training goals are is, is usually a good way to go. I think using, using both of those modalities is, uh, is often a good approach for most athletes. Yeah. I, I think you make, uh, some great points there and I completely agree with them. I definitely, uh, agree with the point on, uh, able, being able to be more controlled with your, uh, intensity indoors and and also it being highly efficient and 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 especially the controlled part i say as somebody who lives in an area where the most of the cycling that i do is uh while it's not mountainous but by any means it's always up and down uh and and quite steep and sharp pitches a lot of times so it's quite difficult to to do certain rides on on that terrain at the same time i also recognize uh for myself personally as well as uh some some athletes that 
yeah, sometimes when you start to feel a little bit burnt out on training, what uh, what helps to do is to stop doing all the indoor riding and, and just get out and ride in the, <laughs> on the road. And, and then everything seems to sort itself out quite well. So, um, yeah, definitely it's a, it's a balance, as you say, and, and it depends a bit on the individual and, and what terrain they have around them as well as to where that sweet spot lies, I think. But uh, discussing then uh, specific terrain considerations, uh, so let's assume for this question that we have an abundance of options. So, so we have long climbs and, and we have rolling routes, we have flat routes. Uh, what types of workouts would you recommend doing on what type of terrain? Yes, I think certainly with, with every athlete, what we try to do is get them to, to be aware of those, you know, training environments that they have on their doorstep and, you know, basically choose choose some routes that actually suit particular training sessions well for them um i think flatter routes are really good for you know those fairly routine uh, endurance uh, you know aerobic development rides where you're um trying to con- you know keep the intensity fairly low um and try not to have sort of try not to have big sort of spikes spikes throughout so so long duration rides i think work really well on uh on flatter terrain um just just again for that intensity control um certainly having steeper hills um works really well i think for various uh interval interval training uh especially short short intervals um having a gradient to push against i think is really useful um and and then those you know the the longer the longer hills that are maybe have a slightly um, slightly lower gradient, uh, are useful for, um, you know, th- those, those longer intervals, maybe some, some tempo work, um, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I think, yeah, in, in an ideal situation where you've got that, that, um, that nice mix of all kinds of, uh, all kinds of terrain, you can definitely use that to your advantage and figure out, as I was saying before, certain routes that, work well in terms of the goals of that particular workout Hmm. do you ever uh prescribe workouts like almost like fart leg type workouts where you uh or where you have a route that is whatever it may be and and then the goal is just to try to go fairly fast uh as over that particular course whatever it might be and so for example if it's a quite a rolling one then you would push hard on the uphills and maybe uh, get you know, get back up to speed of course or as you crest the hill and then and then you can recover on the downhill once you once you reach a certain speed and uh, do, would you do those kinds of rides or or workouts or, or would it be generally a bit more structured than that well i actually think you know uh, having having f- unstructured rides every now and again is a good thing i think it just al- allows the athlete you know a little bit of breathing space but also doesn't um it doesn't doesn't sort of mean that you can't still get an in, a, a fairly intensive workout in there. So um, certainly, unstructured rides are um, a, a big part of quite a lot of our athletes' training. Um, you know, sometimes that that might be a group ride where you you get those same dynamics of um, harder harder portions and uh, and and lighter intensity portions. But certainly, like you were saying, just picking a rolling route and just having the having the terrain dictate the, the the session more so than having it sort of structured from the outset is uh is a really good way to get get a get a um a good training session in have something else dictate the the the, the intensity rather than rather than it being fully controlled by yourself and um and just for sometimes getting some motivation back and just you know taking the pressure off from from the from the ongoing training process is, uh, is, is, you know, unstructured rides, I think are a really good tool for, for all those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, I think mentally it's just so much easier to push from the bottom to the top of the hill rather than to push for, um, a specific duration, even though that hill might actually be a bit longer than the specific duration might have been. So, um, yeah, let's say it's five, it's five minutes, but even if the hill takes you five and a half minutes, it just feels easier when you know that, you have a that specific endpoint uh, once you get to the top. Um, but moving on to the real world, where we might not have uh, this abundance of uh, terrain options. So, if we discuss as, as an example your uh, 
locally based clientele and and maybe um, also across the UK. What kind of advice do you give them regarding when to use what type of train? So then you you don't have those long climbs at least, and and in some cases you might you have athletes living in big cities where a lot of the riding time might be wasted by getting out of the city. So so what are some specific recommendations in in these examples that you would give? Yeah, and we do. You know, we have some athletes that live in li- literally central London and, and literally central San Francisco. So that's certainly a real world you know issue that we that we have to find solutions to um quite often they if they're performing their training outside then finding parks and you know riding laps of parks can be a good good way to do it so i know you know richmond park in london is quite a quite a famous one and it has it has has some variable terrain in there as well so it can be it can be used quite nicely for a, a fairly wide variety of sessions and and then i think if usually that athlete can can get out of the city um, and into some countryside surrounding, um, but it takes a little while of kind of stop start, you know, riding through traffic to to get out there. So usually, if if um, that day is kind of planned as a, a longer ride, we'll try and get that athlete to just take it really easy as they get in. Uh, sorry, get out of the city and then as they come back in, so that that's not taken away from. It's not taking too much energy away from the actual session that, you know, you might say begins once they get out onto more sort of open roads. So, um, obviously if it takes 25, 30 minutes to get out of the city and potentially the same to get back, that's, that's adding a, an hour of training time onto that workout. So I think just keeping that as easy as possible and using it more as a warm up, and then, uh, maybe switching to, to an intensity that's more sort of workout specific, um, is a good way to do it. So that it doesn't take too much out of them. Um, but yeah, but again, it's it's really about finding sort of routes that work for for the kind of key sessions that are part of that program and in in city centres, um, you know, parks and and those kinds of areas generally work quite well. Mm, yeah, and uh, what is your take on uh, low cadence work? So yeah, when when you look at as I'm sure you have done the, the scientific research, then there's not that much convincing evidence really, but at the same time, you have a lot of athletes and coaches that swear by it. And and anecdotally, I think that it, it seems to work really well, at least for some athletes. So curious to hear what, what you think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it does. It, it works for some athletes more than it works for others. Um, we tend to use it, if we're going to sort of prescribe specifically low cadence, it's usually um, because it reflects something about the events that they're actually that the athlete is preparing for. So for instance, if we were helping someone train towards like a European sportive where there's going to be sort of hour long climbs, sometimes with fairly steep gradients, there's going there's usually going to be some low cadence riding in there. So I think using it more as like specific preparation and familiarization, um, is it, is a good application of, of low cadence work. Um, and also, I think that there are certain athletes who really ben- benefit from it more so than others. Um, I know quite a few athletes, you know, will experience cramp and those kind of sensations in a in in a race where their their muscle tension f- is is quite high for a prolonged period of time, and that's not something they might necessarily do in training. So when it comes to the actual race itself, it's you know the body's kind of a fish out of water in that in that particular way. So I think. I think preparing preparing specifically for those demands using that kind of that kind of training type that type of training is uh, is usually how we tend to use it. Mm. And in that case, would the duration and intensity be specific to the event as well? I guess so. In the example of hour long climbs, would you do some longer, you know, ten twenty minute intervals at a kind of moderate intensity? Uh, is that how you would? Uh, assign duration and intensity to those efforts yeah the, exactly so the, the the event demands would inform what we would do in training to some extent i think usually you'll find that um the the intensity that's paired with that low cadence is usually in that sort of tempo range maybe up to like a sweet spot sort of intensity um i think that's a com- combining sort of low cadence work with that sub threshold kind of level it tends to be a, a, a good a good balance because I think it's a it's an intensity that's fairly high and you know to to produce that you'll need at a, at a low cadence you're actually you're producing quite a lot of torque there 
Um, but it also allows you, it's, it's intense enough to give, um, a good stimulus, um, from that regard, but, uh, but it allows you to go for, for longer durations as well, because it is below that, uh, that threshold critical power level. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Regarding strength training, so strength training in the gym, not not strength endurance training. Uh, what's your take on using that uh, for cyclists? Well, I think the uh, so, you know scientific literature and the anecdotal evidence is is there that strength training is uh, beneficial to to a lot of cyclists. I definitely think there's a you have to look again at things on an individual basis and say. Is this uh, is it possible to to successfully integrate strength training into this athlete's program? Do they have too much on already with their primary you know, primary sport or not? And uh, d- does their physiology um, do, does what we know about their physiology suggest that they could benefit m- more from strength training than than other um, athletes potentially? I think in terms of how we then go about prescribing that, we try and keep things. We usually try and keep things fairly simple. So keep the amount of exercises fairly low, um, have them be sport specific, and then just generally follow like a, a fairly well-established periodization, um, approach f- throughout the year. So, you know, building up more towards sort of maximal strength and then tapering, tapering off, getting, uh, tr- bringing, bring more of the primary sport and the specific training in as the, as maybe the strength training goes into maintenance mode, um, but uh, but but yeah, if I think if it can be successfully integrated into a training program, and as a bonus, if that athlete can um, can could could really benefit from that strength training, then I think it's a it's an excellent thing to do. And I think uh, efforts should be made by pretty much all cyclists to try and get some strength work in. I think that's certainly something you can do earlier in the season when you don't have to be worrying about you know the primary primary activity being being so prevalent mm. and uh, what is the split among your athletes between uh, athletes that actually go into a gym to do this versus doing strength training at home well we we would always try if, if an athlete is doing strength training is to try and get them uh, into a gym so that they can use you know proper machines uh, and, and actually lift kind of fairly heavy weights obviously some some athletes have really well equipped home gyms that d- do the same thing so i think uh, the question is really whether you know they're just using sort of body weight exercises or fairly light weights at home versus like a gym so but but usually we would try to get them sort of into it if they're doing the strength training try to do that properly and have them in a gym where they can actually lift you know heavy weights in a controlled way that's not to say that home workouts and uh, lighter weights are are out of the question or not not useful but um but i certainly i certainly think having the opportunity to actually push those those uh, heavier loads is uh, is where you'll often see the you know the, the biggest improvements come from the strength work yeah uh, that's definitely where the uh, scientific evidence seems seems to point uh, anyway so definitely understand that um and then I have some, some, uh, a few more questions before getting to the rapid fire questions. And, uh, these are kind of, uh, general fun questions to end with. And the first one is if you could give three pieces of advice for listeners uh, of this podcast that would help them improve their endurance performance, what would that be? So I would say, uh, firstly, broadly speaking, uh, taking a long-term approach to things is, a, you know, it's just a good, a good way to see, to see sustained improvements. I think when you look for quick wins and short, you know, short-term, rapid short-term improvements, that usually comes at the, that, that's usually detrimental to something more long-term and, and, and that kind of fitness doesn't stick around for too long. So I think firstly, having that, that patience and that, and, and knowing that it's going to take, you know, qu- quite a few, quite a few weeks and months for, for things to really materialize um, is, is one thing that just should hopefully stop you know, people tripping themselves up and falling into a trap of, you know, non-functional overreaching or, or just getting burnt out, trying to do things, you know, too quickly. Um, I think fuel, you know, making sure you're fueled is a, is another really important one. Um, I, I know a lot of athletes kind of read about, uh, low carbohydrate, tra- low carbohydrate training or fasted training. And I think there, there is a, there is potentially a place for that for some athletes it, with regard to certain um, certain 
workout modalities and certain um, workout goals. But uh, I think generally speaking, you want to be well fueled. And certainly I think if you misunderstand that, that low carbohydrate or fasted side and try and do, you know, high intensity workouts like that, you know, you very quickly get into a, a problematic situation. So I think just having the idea of being well fueled for your sessions, you know, both pre-workout during and after, um, would be the second thing I would probably say. And then talking more specifically about women as well, I think paying attention to optimizing training for their menstrual cycle, um, is a, is a really important thing as well, because there are, there are times in that cycle where you're really not going to be in a good, uh, a, a good position to, to push hard, to absorb, um, you know, carbohydrate calories and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, my last point would be to, to, to maybe look into that a little bit more and, uh, and optimize the training to, to, for, you know, for the, for the menstrual cycle. Yeah. And, uh, just a couple of notes of related episodes on those two latter topics with low carb training and, uh, the menstrual cycle Tim Podlegar, uh, you haven't heard this yet because I haven't released the episode when we record this, but he will be one or two weeks uh, before you so so for listeners listening to this episode as it comes out it will be just one or one or two episodes back in the catalog and uh, kelly mcnulty uh was a year or so ago and i'll link to her in the show notes and episode description as well and we talk about the menstrual cycle and also oral com- contraceptives and how they influence training um and uh, then what is something that you've changed your mind about uh, in training or in coaching in the last few years and that you do differently now than you used to i think as you you know as you coach more and more athletes and you just become more experienced in the field you start to realize a couple of things and start to um uh, yeah just just understand that you you might have got that you might have gone too far down down one rabbit hole um and put too much emphasis on certain things so certainly one of them i think is um you know the polarized intensity distribution i think if you read that too literally you can sort of start to see this middle intensity has been um quite quite a dangerous zone to spend any kind of time in and there's i think some people that take it very literally and uh, avoid that middle intensity a great deal whereas i think now uh it, it's become quite clear that depending on which way you look at that um more of like a pyramidal uh, approach tends to you know tends to materialize and i think actually you know, the more you think about it and the more you, um, you know, work with different athletes, you realize that there are certainly ben- benefits to training in that, in that middle intensity zone. It's not something to be entirely avoided. It's, it's, um, yeah. So, so not, not being too literal, I think with applying, I, I suppose, fairly f- sometimes theoretical training intensity distri- distributions. I realize that, you know, that these, these have come from observational studies, um, of what the you know top performers have have been doing but um but yeah i think sometimes you can get a bit too a bit too literal with that um yeah i, I completely agree and and i think th- there are a lot of things uh in in that first of all in the training intensity distribution literature there are quite drastic differences in methodology to to establish the the different training zones for one thing is it two millimole and four millimole lactate or is it a graded exercise test or or how how did they define that is it even just heart rate data or rpe data there are so many different variables there and that will change the results sometimes quite a bit and and secondly as you say it was observational studies and and uh that's not it it doesn't always tell us about what the what the intention of the program was and how it was changed as well so yeah i think i think looking at an observational study and then trying to prescribe based on observation is is not necessarily the the best way to go so i think that's a a great great point and and just one final point on that uh i had an interview with dr luca filipas um again a year or so ago i think where he did some interesting research about polarized and pyramidal training intensity distributions and and periodizing them uh, as well so so that i'll link to that in the show notes for listeners that want to to learn more about that and uh is there anything in particular that you are focused on right now as part of your coaching development 
I think that the thing that we're kind of working on a little bit more behind the scenes is trying to trying to sort of create resources and um, helpful information for self-coached athletes. So I think um, with how, you know, how technology is advancing and, um, uh, and the, the tools that are available, there are a lot more, uh, obviously the, the, the amount of people that are, you know, the amount of athletes that are self-coached is greater than, than those that actually have the resources or inclination to, to work directly with a coach. And I think, you know, a, a, an individual athlete is actually in a really good position if they have the, if they have the tools and knowledge there to be able to coach themselves, you know, qu- quite a few people work with a coach for, for the accountability aspects. And I think that's something that's certainly important, but you know, that athlete knows their, their body the best. Um, and they have that direct feedback from their body all the time. So if they can, um, if they, if they can, you know, if they know how to interpret that and how to, uh, you know, use certain frameworks and best practices to plan their training, then, um, you know, that that's potentially, a, a massive group of athletes that we can help. So uh, behind the scenes, we're trying to work on some sort of information resources and different, I suppose, I suppose little tools that can help um, self-coached athletes um, and, and try to teach them some of the approaches we use as coaches working with athletes that they can then, you know, use, use themselves. Mm, yeah. And is that something, do you have an, uh, an, an estimated uh, time for when you will uh, release those resources? We're, we're hoping sort of over the next kind of six months to be working on those. We we have um, on the on the website right now kind of a, a fairly, I suppose, what's what's a bit like a digital textbook um, of sort of cycling physiology and uh, like a, a cycling physiology and training science guide. So it tries to um, give some of the underlying phys- physiological information and then the sort of more of the practical practical approaches to actually applying that to to the to the daily training so we we have that at the moment and then we're we're looking to just produce get you know produce a little bit more of that alongside what we uh, you know feed into feed feed in um, what we learn from coach actually working directly with athletes to to help those that maybe don't want a, a, a full-time coach um so so yeah hopefully hopefully over the next kind of six months that might be something that uh, something that appears all right yeah and uh let's move on to the rapid fire questions so take just one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports i i was always inspired by um some of the running literature actually when i when i started so daniel's running formula is uh, is one that i always like to revisit quite often and um and and look over some of the arthur lydiard pdfs that are sort of floating around the internet um are always good so um uh, yeah, those, those kinds of, uh, resources. And then also, um, Phil Skiba's, um, latest book on, um, scientific, um, training for endurance athletes is, uh, is a, is a book that, uh, I really like. Um, and Alan Cousins, I know, I think you've had, I think you've had Alan on the podcast before. I, I really enjoy his, uh, his writing on his blog and, uh, Twitter account. And uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? I think being conscious where you where you spend your sort of limited time and energy. Um, so uh, performing something a bit like an eighty twenty analysis of what what you know what's the twenty percent that gives you the the the, the disproportionate yield. Um, so I think that helps in in training to, to know what, to, you know, you can't focus on everything. So where should you focus your, your training that comes down to your, you know, your physiology and what you're actually training for, but also just in a more of like a professional life, um, understanding where you can have the most impact with your sort of limited, limited resources is something that's probably helped. Mm, yeah, that's really great. And, uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Well, coming from a mountain bike background, I've always been sort of inspired by the sort of greats of that sport. So uh, Nino Schurter and Julian Absalon. Um, Nino's just won his tenth uh, uh, world title just this weekend. Past that was that was pretty inspirational. Um, and then at the, at the risk of not being too soppy, certainly my my other half, um, Dr. Emma Wilkins, is certainly inspirational to me. You know, she's um, she's had a, a a great many kind of academic. Uh, just impressive academic um, achievements from uh, being at Oxford University and then progressing to through a master's and completing a PhD and uh, and then working with alongside me today. She certainly uh, 
does a heck of a lot for for arts or small company so i suppose she she would be certainly an inspiration as well yeah right and uh finally tell the listeners where they can find find you and find out more about you and your coaching business yeah so our our website is uh highnorth.co.uk that's where we sort of post our articles and have information on our um, services and some of the little products that I sort of mentioned before. Um, I can be found myself on uh, platforms like Instagram. Uh, my handle is uh, Tom Bell CO. Um, and yeah, I think they're, they're the probably uh, two places to head to, f- to find out more about uh, me and uh, our, our performance consultancy. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. I really enjoyed uh, the chat. Lots of lots of really useful information here. So uh, appreciate it. I hope to talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Michael. It was uh, yeah, great to talk to you too. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with plenty of links, uh, including, of course, Tom's website and social media. And in the show notes, we will have links, of course, uh, to some of the guests that have been on the podcast that we mentioned in uh, in the interview, including uh, doctors uh, Tim Podlegar, Luca Filippa, Kelly McNulty, and Philip Skiba. And if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or training plan. Whether you're just getting into triathlon, trying to qualify for a world championship event, or even want to race professionally, we have experience in all of those scenarios and we'd love to discuss further around if and how we can help you on your triathlon journey. Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your goals and needs and see what is best for you. Next Monday, I interview Dr. Ben Despro on the topic of alcohol and endurance sports. Uh, this is a topic that I wanted to cover for quite some time, so I'm, I'm really excited to be able to deliver it soon. At the moment of recording this, uh, we haven't yet done the interview, so uh, fingers crossed that, that we will not have any hiccups, but it is scheduled uh, to go ahead uh, for a few days from now, so hopefully it will get out as planned. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roga.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roga order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.